allow me to take this opportunity to wish all of you a happy new year. I hope the holidays were celebratory, festive, joyful. I hope that you are eager to run the race that is in front of you in 2024. Uh, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. In one of the more momentous, solemn passages of Paul's letters where he talks about his imminent departure from this world um, and provides, as we'll see, tremendous encouragement uh, to be faithful to God. So that's the passage we're in, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Let's hear God's word together. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what do we have that we have not received? You've given us another year of life, another precious day. Help us, Lord, to learn to live more and more for your glory. Father, this is a time when we resolve to do good, to grow, and become the people you've called us to be. We pray that this year would be characterized not simply by unfulfilled resolutions to do good. We pray, Lord, that there would be a fulfillment of that which we resolve to do. Strengthen us, Lord, to bring to fruition all, uh, all initiatives for good that you've put on our hearts at the beginning of the year. Father, we pray that you would use your word this morning to sanctify us, to make us like Jesus. Correct us, Lord, where we need correcting. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Uh, use your word to transform us and draw those who may not know you as their Savior into a saving relationship with you. Amen. Uh, when I was in elementary school, we had the once or twice a year, the mile run. Did you guys have this? Uh, the mile run. It was a big deal. Uh, so big that they would take us from our school and we'd cross the street and go to the high school and use the high school track for the mile. And uh, you know, this, this is the track that the big kids used and we'd all go there with a sense of excitement and anticipation, uh, energetic at that starting line to run the mile. On the other hand, we looked very different at the end of the mile. Uh, some of that enthusiasm, that initial energy dissipated over the course of the run. Uh, we got to the end of the mile, you know, our hair plastered to our foreheads with sweat, we're glistening, uh, gasping, panting, crawling, our hands behind our head. Uh, it's, it's one thing to start a race, it's another to finish it. Uh, one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the Christian life is that of race, running, a marathon. And what you need is not just the initial enthusiasm that fades so quickly, 
you need that enthusiasm, but you also need uh, steadfastness, perseverance. You need to endure and finish well. And the passage that we're looking at today provides strong encouragement for us to run the race well. Not just to start enthusiastically and fizzle out, but to keep going to the very end. This is the climactic moment of 2 Timothy. Everything has been heading to this moment. Throughout this letter, Paul has been writing to his younger ministry uh, colleague, Timothy, and he has been encouraging him to be faithful to the ministry that God has given to him, to be faithful in the exercise of his gifts, to preach the word and to endure suffering. There have been variations on that theme, and this is the climactic statement of that. This is where Paul looks at Timothy and says, Timothy, do what God has given you to do, especially in light of my imminent departure. And then Paul speaks of his own imminent death, not simply to talk about himself, but to motivate Timothy and us. So we will note two things this morning. First is this, as we look at the passage. Do what God has given you to do. Do what God has given you to do. Second, we will consider four encouragements to do that. Four encouragements to do that. So verse 2 is at the heart of Paul's exhortation to Timothy. Timothy, make sure you do this. And what is this? Preach the word. Again, there have been variations on that theme throughout the letter. Take what you've learned from me, teach it to others, guard the good deposit, the gospel that you've received, contend against error, uh, preach the whole counsel of God, all of scripture. But this is at the very heart of Tim Timothy's ministry. He is called to preach the Bible and to preach Christ, preach the word. To the heart of faithful Christian ministry. What other, whatever else pastors need to be doing, they need to be declaring the word of God to the people of God. And whatever else the church is, it is a community defined by its commitment to the truth, defined by its commitment to Jesus. Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. When it's convenient to do so and not conv convenient to do so. When it's, uh, the time seems opportune for teaching and when it doesn't, Every moment of life, preach the word. Be ready. Always be ready to declare the truth. And then Paul further refines what he means by preaching the word with reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Faithful Bible teaching and instruction will reprove us from time to time, will correct us, will say, hey, you're going the wrong way, come back. Here's where you are in error. A rebuke is even stronger. It's when someone refuses to be corrected, and they persist in their stubborn rebellion, a rebuke is firmer and says, consider where you're going. It's a warning. It's a call back. And then we also need not just to be corrected, but to be exhorted, to be encouraged to keep going if we're going in the right direction. It's easy to lose heart, and so we need to be uh, urged to keep going. Timothy is to do these things with patience. Uh, change doesn't happen overnight. Uh, the word needs to be proclaimed again and again so that it gradually shapes the people of God. So faithful ministry requires this kind of wise intrusion. The word has to step on our toes a little bit. It has to poke and prod and show us where we are going wrong. It doesn't just soothe us and tell us everything is okay. Uh, now, if that's what faithful ministry is, that's what God has called pastors to do, has called Timothy to do, but think for a moment, what does it imply about your need? If God has called pastors to reprove, rebuke, exhort, then what does that imply about what you need spiritually? 
Well, it implies that you need to be corrected, that you need to be challenged, that you need to be encouraged. This is a basic spiritual need that we have. Uh, if we are going to run the race well, this has to happen. The, the word of God has to show us where we're going astray and bring us back to the flock. And that is a tendency that we have. Uh, prone to wander, Lord, I fe uh, feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are prone to wander from the flock. And the word of God is Jesus saying to us, through the ministry of the word, come back to the flock where it's safe. So the public preaching ministry of the church is meant to correct you when you go astray and protect you. This is not just something pastors do. This is something that, at another level, all of us are called to do. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Obviously, that implies a relationship with a person. You don't start correcting people you don't know. Uh, but in the context of relationship and community, you say, hey, can, have you considered what you're doing and how it deviates from the truth of God and his will? So if we're going to be faithful and if we are going to do what God has called us to do, no, we can't do it alone. By ourselves, we run off the track, go into the bushes, and into the weeds. We need a community that's constantly inviting us back to faithfulness and saying, hey, you're going astray. Sin is deceitful, but we can be entangled in it, and we're not even aware that we're entangled in it, and so we need the ministry of the word to hold up a mirror to us and say, this is, this is the truth about you. And then that way, God keeps us going in the right direction. There's a sense in which that's exactly what Paul is doing for Timothy, not reproving and rebuking him, but exhorting him. The whole letter, Paul is doing what? Timothy, remember the gift that you have. Use it. Remember to teach. Remember to endure suffering. And he's reminding him of these things. Timothy is going to be faithful to his ministry. He is going to do what God has called him to do because of Paul's exhortation. To be the pastor Timothy is called to be, he needs Paul and Paul's encouragement. And in the same way, we need the word of God that is proclaimed to us week after week, as well as fellowship with God's people, if we are to run faithfully. What that means then practically is we need to be committed to gathering with God's people to hear the word of God proclaimed. We need to gather week after week to be taught scripture, challenged by scripture, because that's one of the basic means that God uses to protect us, uh, to keep us on the right path. Uh, it's easy to become complacent about this, especially when you're busy, you're tired, you've got a lot of things going on, to say, oh, it's just one week, and then one week becomes two weeks, and we develop a habit of neglecting one of the primary means that God uses to keep us safe, namely correction and instruction through his word. So is gathering with God's people a priority, and are you disciplined about that? Then furthermore, it's not enough simply to show up to hear the word. It's important to ask and be honest with yourself, what is your attitude towards the word? The word is profitable to us. When we come to church and we take off our armor and the shield and we are not defensive we come into to church with a humble teachable heart and we say lord speak for your servant listens when you come to church ready to hear the voice of god in scripture and submit to whatever you hear you are going to profit from the word but if you come and sit in judgment on the word ready to dismiss everything that doesn't fit with your own preconceptions 
putting up the shield, guarding yourself against God's word, the word will often not be profitable. Christopher Ashe wrote a little article on how to receive the word, preaching of the word, and he says, I need to sit under the word in humility, not over it in judgment. God is God and I am not. I must be ready then to adjust my opinions, my beliefs, and uh, my heart, my life. So what's your heart attitude when you come on Sunday? Do you say, Lord, you come with a sense of expectation, I want to hear what you have for me, and I want to be changed by the truth. Or do you come with a kind of dismissive attitude? We'll see. I'll take what I like. Uh, A reverent posture towards the word. That sort of attitude is what makes it profitable. So if Timothy is called to reprove and rebuke, it's because we need to be reproved and rebuked. But notice the reason that Paul gives in verse 3 and 4. Timothy, preach the word. Why? For the time is coming, and if we compare that to chapter 3, we see that the time has come. When people will not endure sound teaching, there's going to be an allergy to the truth. People, we th- people generally think, I'll, I'll go where the evidence takes me. No, you don't. You don't like where the evidence takes you. There is a bias, a moral bias against the evidence. Uh, people won't stand for sound teaching, won't stand for the truth. They have itching ears, which means that they're eager for novelties, They want their ears to be scratched with all kinds of esoteric, weird, and wonderful trivia, perhaps grounded in Scripture. But they're not interested in the main thing of Scripture, right? The main truths of the Bible, Jesus, salvation, sin, and so on. They're interested in speculative things. Interesting, these people with itching ears are are lapsed Christians. We're told in verse 4 that they turned away from listening to the truth. So they were once, at least outwardly saying they were Christians, committed to the truth. But these outward, uh, outwardly professing Christians have wandered from the truth. And what are they doing? They're collecting for themselves false teachers. And one characteristic of these teachers is that they suit their own evil desires or passions. They want teachers who are not going to rebuke and reprove and exhort. They want teachers who are going to say to them, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay, keep doing what you're doing, you're great. False teaching doesn't confront, it doesn't challenge, it assures you that you are just fine the way that you are. False teaching is like a soothing lullaby when the ship is going down, right? Keeps you there, quiet, happy. True teaching, on the other hand, often unsettles you by telling you the ship is going down, but it also provides a life raft, right? Identifies the problem and points you to the place where there's hope. So this is a time where error will proliferate, where there will, false, there will be false teachers, and people will gather these kinds of teachers to just affirm them in their sinful lifestyle. And precisely because in the last days, this period between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, precisely because this time is a time of error, falsehood, Timothy, make sure that you declare the truth. The church needs to be a beacon of life, uh, a light rather, in truth in a dark world. Fulfill your ministry because there is error everywhere. Make sure that in season and out of season you declare that which is right. And then verse 5 is the final summary, the final charge to Timothy to engage in ministry. As for you, always be sober-minded. The word that's translated sober-minded is literally sober, not drunk. But it's used figuratively or metaphorically Uh, to refer to being level-headed, 
having good judgment and self-control. And it includes the idea of knowing why you've been put on this earth, understanding exactly what God has called you to do, being clear about that, free from distractions, the pressures of life, the pleasures of life, and knowing exactly what you're supposed to do. Clarity concerning God's will for your life. Be sober-minded, Timothy. Endure suffering. And there, that's been another theme in 2 Timothy, all over the place. Timothy, if you're going to be faithful to Jesus, life will be hard. And that's okay. That's the way it is. Anybody who wants to follow Jesus and obey his commands will face hardship. And love for Jesus means a willingness to accept that hardship. Preaching the truth in a dark world will mean opposition. Embrace that opposition out of love for Jesus, Timothy. Do the work of an evangelist. Preach the gospel so other people come to find salvation in Jesus. In short, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, do everything God has called you to do and do it with all your might. Now what Paul says to Timothy, the word of God says to all of us today, it's not just for Timothy. Pastors are called to fulfill their ministry, but every Christian is called to do what God has put them on this earth to do and to do it with all their might. Every single one of us who belongs to God has a calling, a unique way of serving God. And the challenge to us is do that which God has given you to do in this life. Do it with all your heart. Of course, to do it with all your heart, you first need to understand what it is that God put you on earth to do. You have to understand your purpose. You have to understand your calling. And when we, when we ask the question, what has God called you to do? We inevitably start thinking about, like, you know, what special, unique thing does God have for me? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discover the special and unique thing by maybe going into the forest and meditating, and maybe I'll get a vision to discover my purpose. I think, I think actually knowing what God has called you to do is, is less dramatic than that. Another way of asking the question, what has God called you to do in this life, is asking, what are my responsibilities? What are my responsibilities to God? Answer that question biblically, and you have a broad, in broad outline, you know exactly what God has called you to do. It's interesting the way Paul ends many of his letters by addressing different categories of people, children, wives, husbands, servants. Here's what it looks like for you to honor God. You know, work hard, take care of your kids, right? Uh, so kids, what does it mean to live a life that is honoring to God? What is his will for your life? Well, above all, honor your mother and father. Respect them, obey them. This is pleasing to God. Learn at an early stage of your life how to respect authority, how to submit to good authority, and it will go well with you. Trust me. Learn that lesson early in life. If you're in school, young person in school, uh, work hard at your studies. Prepare for life. Have something to contribute by being diligent in your schoolwork. That's how you glorify God as a child or relatively young person. If you're married, have a husband and wife. What is God's will for you? Well, love them well. Work for their spiritual good. Pray for them. Encourage them with the word of God. Enjoy them. Cultivate a beautiful relationship with your husband or wife. I think I saw a book recently that said, date your wife. Not bad advice. No, enjoy your spouse. Go out to dinner. Cultivate a rich conversational life that isn't limited to bills and kids. Right? Cultivate a beautiful relationship with your spouse. It's God's will. 
you're a mom or your dad, what's God's will? To take this little boy or little girl and form them into a godly man or woman. Teach them how to work hard, how to use money. Teach them the gospel. Teach them the wisdom of God. And it's going to be massively time-consuming. And for a season of your life, that's perhaps the main thing you do, which is fine. It, might, it may mean they have to say no to many other things, but that's fine. That's God's will for you as a parent. If you're a worker, what's God's will? Well, at a minimum, work hard. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Do it with all your might. Whatever God has given you to do, do it. Don't just go through the motions. Do it with creativity, with initiative. How do you become a better worker? And how can you leverage opportunities at work for the advancement of the kingdom? How can you do what you do better, differently, to bless others? Use your gifts to serve others. It's another emphasis we get in the New Testament. God has put in each of us different gifts. Use them. Use them to serve. Use them to help other people grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. Broadly speaking, this is what it means to fulfill the calling that God has put on your life. Faithfulness in these ordinary responsibilities. That kind of faithfulness is actually extraordinary. It's not primarily go and do something spectacular out there in the world, although God may call us to be missionaries or whatever. But mainly, understand your responsibilities and faithfully carry them out. Now, I freely grant, once you've defined, okay, I need to be a faithful dad, worker, etc., it's going to take some thought and prayer to figure out how to do it well. It's going to take some work. Of course it's going to take some work. But you at least know where to start. You know the broad outline of God's will, and now prayerfully consider how you can be more faithful in those areas. So if after the service I come up to you, I may or may not, and I ask you, why has God put you on this earth? Could you tell me, well, he's called me to be a dad, uh, to work hard and build my construction business, uh, to care for my wife. C can you tell me why God has put you on this earth? And here's why it's so important to be able to answer that question. If you don't answer it with a certain level of specificity, you won't know what to say no to. This is one of the great things, but also hard things about modern life. There's so many options. You can do so many different things. You go back to school, start a new career, get a second job, start a business, move, right? All of these things are within the realm of possibility. They're all things we can do. But if you don't have a clear sense of calling, potentially you're going to go from one thing to another without any clear trajectory in your life, without any sense of this is what I'm building with my life. To be able to say no to distractions, we need to understand what God has called us to do. Ted Tripp I think provides a good example of this in his book on parenting. He says, if you're going to be a faithful parent, especially when the kids are young, that will mean saying no to cer certain other things, good things even. He says, parenting is your primary calling. Parenting will mean that you can't do all the things that you could otherwise do. It will affect your golf handicap. It may mean your home does not look like a picture from Better Homes and Gardens. It, it will impact your career and ascent on the corporate ladder. It will influence the kind of ministry you're able to pursue. It will modify the amount of time that you have for bowling, hunting, television, or how many books you read. It will mean that you can't develop every interest that comes along the costs are high. To say yes to faithful parenting, you're going to have to say no to lots of other good things that come your way. The same thing holds true in all of these other areas of life. To be faithful as a worker, as a husband, as a dad, as a mom, you have to say no to certain things. But it becomes easier to know what to say no to when God has shown you what you need to say yes to. So be clear 
What does it mean to fulfill your ministry? What has God put you on this earth to do? Define it and then do it with all your might. And here are four encouragements to do what God has put you on this earth to do. Four encouragements to run the race. Here's number one. We skip verse one. Let's go back to it. Paul doesn't just say preach the word. He builds up to it. There is a momentous charge in verse one. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. First encouragement to run the race, to do what God has put you on earth to do, you're going to give an account to Jesus Christ. Paul is reminding Timothy, this is not just me giving you human advice. Behind what I'm saying, Timothy, is the will of God Almighty for you. All of life is lived before the face of God. And one day, Timothy, you will give an account to Jesus Christ, our Lord. An account for how you spent your time and your energy, your resources, your opportunities. Run hard because one day we will give an account to God. And really, this is liberating because it shows us that at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters in life is whether God is pleased with us or not. Whether we've met other people's expectations, whether our lives are aligned with our culture's expectations about the good life, whether we've even fulfilled our own vision of what we should accomplish, all of that is secondary, inconsequential, compared to whether or not we've actually lived lives that are pleasing to God. That's what matters, and that's the only thing that matters. Frees us from the tyranny of other people's expectations, keeping up with the Joneses, for instance. Our job is not to keep up with anyone. Our job is to be faithful to God. Knowing we are accountable to him should drive us to be faithful. It's very different from the way our culture thinks. Many modern people, when they look at life and consider, what sort of life should I live? The first question is, what's going to make me happy? How will I be fulfilled? What, what should I do? Right? You start with the self. Uh, Tim Keller describes it this way. Modern secular education teaches every child that they must be true to themselves, that they must identify their deepest desires and dreams and pursue them, not letting family, community, tradition, or religion stand in their way. What did Zach say last week? You be you. Right? Uh, look at your heart, decide what you most want, and don't let anybody get in the way. You pursue that. You pursue your own happiness. Opposite of what Paul is saying here. Whether or not you feel fulfilled or happy, that's a secondary issue. The only question is, is your life pleasing to God? And if it is, that's what matters. And here's the irony. As C.S. Lewis observes, those who pursue happiness as their main thing lose happiness in God. If you selfishly pursue your own happiness, you won't find it, and you will lose it and God. But if you aim at something other than happiness, namely God, you will find both God and happiness. Happiness is one of those things you can't get by grasping at it and aiming at it directly. You have to aim at something other than happiness, namely obedience to God, to get happiness. Please God, and all the other stuff gets thrown in. Pursue the other stuff to the exclusion of God, and you lose both. First encouragement to run the race well, there a day is coming when you will give an account to God. Number two, Jesus is coming back. I charge you by his appearing and his kingdom. Who's appearing? The appearing of the king, the appearing of Jesus. The king came the first time to redeem us from our sins. He died, rose again so we could be pardoned and reconciled to God. And he is now reigning in glory at the right hand of God. But the king is coming back. 
And when he comes back, his kingdom will be established forever. That is, that is his rule over all of creation and all people will be decisively established. There will be no more opposition to the king. Jesus is coming back. Maybe in our lifetime. Maybe, maybe after we leave this world. But Jesus is coming back in glory and he will make everything new. And everything that we do in this life needs to be lived with an awareness of that massive fact. Look at verse 8. Paul describes believers this way. He says of them, to all who have loved his appearing. To be a Christian is to long for and love that day when the king returns. For us, that's not a day of dread or fear. Earlier in the letter, Paul said to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 9, he speaks of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. God has saved us. He's forgiven us. He's washed us of our guilt, not because of anything we've done, but because of the work of Jesus. We are at peace with God. And so the coming of the king is not a source of dread and fear. We're excited about the coming of the king. It means everything we've ever longed for will finally come to fruition. Everything that is dark and wrong with the world will be put right when the king returns. And so there is a, a delight in contemplating the coming of Jesus, a longing for it. Do you long for Jesus to come back? Is that a source of dread? Or do you say, come Lord Jesus? All of the deepest longings of my heart will come to fruition when you return. Come, Lord Jesus. But if the king is going to return, then that means that our faithfulness and ordinary responsibilities is not in vain. It's meaningful. It's contributing to something of eternal significance. All our little efforts to advance the kingdom by discipling our kids, serving the church, all these little efforts are contributing to the construction of a great edifice, a great cathedral, if you like. Our lives are not being wasted. By faithfulness to the calling that God has given to us, we are contributing to something of lasting significance, and we are not simply wasting our lives. That's an encouragement to us. Imagine if you worked as a trench digger. You showed up every day, and you dug trenches, and nobody told you why you're digging trenches. You just show up, dig the trench, get your money. Well, you could do it because you need to support your family, so you do it for the money. But are you going to be as enthusiastic about your digging as the guy who shows up to work, and he's also digging trenches, but he's been told, we're, ge we're getting things ready to build a great church here. What you're doing is going to contribute to the worship of the triune God. How does that change how you work? Well, it infuses your work with massive significance and value because you're no longer fundamentally digging trenches. You are now contributing to the worship of the triune God. It changes your perspective. And so also the coming of Jesus needs to change our perspective on the value of the work that we do. So often in life, it doesn't seem like there's an, any immediate value to this ordinary faithfulness. But knowing that, the, that our Lord is coming back shows that what we do is of eternal value and significance, so keep doing it. Third encouragement. This is where we get to these momentous words from the Apostle Paul. It says, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Why? Verse 6. Because I'm about to die, and someone needs to carry the baton. 
I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. The imagery here is probably drawn from the Old Testament, the sacrificial system where the pouring out of a cup was part of the sacrifice. And Paul likes to, to speak of the Christian life as one per, perpetual act of worship. So Romans 12, for example, he calls us to give our bodies as living sacrifices to God. The Christian life is an act of worship. But it's not just life that is an act of worship. Even our death is an act of honoring the king. That's when Paul uses this language. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. When he speaks of fighting the good fight, this could be military imagery, or perhaps it could be athletic imagery, the good struggle, an athletic contest. But either way, the point is the same. Paul has been engaged in a marathon run. He has been engaged in a good struggle, and he has persevered in his ministry to the end. It's finished. Here's the third encouragement to keep running the race. The race will eventually end. We're not going to run forever. As you read the words of Paul, what's striking is the element of fulfillment and completion. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight. It's done. There is coming a day when it will be impossible for you to suffer for Jesus anymore. We're not going to suffer in eternity. There is coming a day when it will be impossible for you to evangelize the lost because there will be no more lost. There is coming a day when we will not be able to sacrifice and endure hardship for Jesus because all of that has passed away. The span of time between the present and the day of our death or the return of Jesus is all that we have left to do these things. One day the race will be over. It's it's striking to consider that we have never been closer to the coming of Jesus or our own death than we are today. At no point in our lives have we ever been closer. That means that the stretch between now and eternity is limited. It's short. And you know what that means? That means you should run the the remainder of the race with all your might. As Jonathan Edwards says, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Don't spare yourself. Don't allow there to be any breath left in your lungs at the finish line. Spend yourself for Jesus and others. When they put your body into the grave, make sure that it's good and worn out and withered, having been worn out for Jesus and others. You shouldn't be well-preserved. You should burn brightly and collapse. There's There's a finish line, and it's not that far away. So run hard. Here's how Andy Wilson puts it. Lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands. Blister them while you can. You have bones. Make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs. Let them spill with laughter. With an average life expectancy of 78.2 years in the U.S., subtracting eight hours a day for sleep, I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining to me in which I could be smiling or scowling, can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and my children and my neighbors, or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, 
Living well is the same as dying for others. Paul's reminder that the race will end should rouse us from our complacency and resolve in the presence of God to live, to be alive energetically and passionately while we are still alive. And being fully alive, running the race well, means living passionately and enthusiastically. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great 20th century Welsh preacher in his book, Spiritual Depression, talks about, especially later on in life, middle age, that, that stage of life and after, it's possible for Christians to get to a place where they're still outwardly doing the things that they need to do, that God has called them to do, but it's become joyless, mechanical, just going through the motions. And this is not the ideal, this is not God's calling. God wants us to live, and he wants us to live with intensity and passion, zeal. Listen to Paul, Romans 12, 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, boiling over in spirit. Serve the Lord. To run well is to run with joy and enthusiasm and passion, not just going through the motions. And a significant obstacle to living life this way and fulfilling God's will, living with joy, is, uh, again, what Lloyd-Jones calls vain regrets. The English novelist Woodhouse advises us, after about the age of 30, not to scrutinize the past too carefully uh, because it's unsettling. It's unsettling because after a certain age, that yawning chasm between what ought to have been and what was is painful. Now we, look, we look back on the part of the race that has been run, and we see, oh, it could have been run better. It wasn't the parent I should have been sinned in ways uh, that continue to grieve me, right? We look back and we're, we're filled with regrets. And what that means is we don't seize the moment in front of us. We don't take advantage of the opportunities in the present because we're so burdened with the guilt of past failures. Well, that's not a Christian way of living life. Let Jesus deal with the past. Past is done. And here's the amazing truth. His shed blood covers all of our sins. The cross answers every single one of the accusations of our past. Let Jesus worry about the past. Let his shed blood cover our sins and transgressions. You focused on, focus on what is ahead of you. Focus on making the most of what remains. Do what Paul does in Philippians 3.13. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Don't get hung up on the past. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So if you have one day left on this earth or 10,000, Focus on what is in front of you. Run the race well. And final encouragement here. Understand that it is possible for even you to run the race well. We might look at the Apostle Paul and go, it's easy for him to say, I've kept the faith, I've finished the race. He's the Apostle Paul. Uh, I hope I make it somehow to the finish line. I don't know if I'll make it well. I just hope I make it. Here's what you need to understand. It's not that there's... a an intrinsic power in Paul that enabled him to finish well. The Savior that Paul had is the Savior that you have. And Jesus Christ is, enable, is able to make you finish the race well. Not just get through life, but conquer, triumph. You could say to me, like, you don't know how flawed and sinful I am. And I would respond by saying, you don't know how good and great Jesus is. Jesus is interested in displaying his saving power, not just in everybody around you, but also in you. Do you believe that your life 
can be characterized not finally by defeat and failure, but by victory. Again, not because of any intrinsic resources that you have, but because Jesus is a great Savior. Just as Paul finished well, we also have the hope that we can finish well through the strength that Jesus provides. When you understand that, that encourages you. This is a possibility for all of us who trust in Jesus, so don't lose heart. And last thing, fourth encouragement. This third one was we, the race will one day end. And finally, what's on the other side of the finish line? Verse 8, a crown. I kept the faith, finished the race. Henceforth, from this point forward, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Eternal glory, as he says earlier in the letter. Victory, triumph. And please note, it's very important, he doesn't just talk about my crown. Notice what he says in verse 8. The righteous judge, the, the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That is, all believers. All those who are trusting in Jesus have a crown on the other side of life's race. It's not just Paul that receives the crown of righteousness, but all those who believe in Jesus. The, the final chapter of life is not a chapter of defeat and misery. It's a chapter of eternal glory, triumph, and joy in Jesus Christ. Again, if Jesus is your Savior, that's where your life is headed. Not to everlasting defeat, but everlasting victory, glory, and honor. And it's not that far away. I don't know how many days God has given me or has given you between now and in Christ's return or the day of our death. But we know that on the other side of death is victory. And when that eternal perspective rouses us from our complacency, breaks the hold of materialism over us and pleasure over us, we are able to live lives energetically for Jesus. We step back from this passage and consider its implications for our lives. Let me ask you three questions or three sets of questions in light of what we've heard. Number one, where have you grown weary? And where do you need to recover your zeal? Two, where have you become neglectful? And what responsibilities do you need to pursue afresh? Three, where have you become distracted? What must you say no to so that you may say yes to God's call. And as you consider your life in light of Paul's teaching, we need to recognize that our confidence, as we've noted, is not in ourselves. But we have a great Savior who not only cleanses us of all sin and unrighteousness, but we have a Savior who empowers us to run the race well to the very end. Knowing that, let us live with all of our might while we do live. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the encouragement of Scripture. Lord, we pray that your encouragements would penetrate our hearts and stir us up, Lord, to live fruitful, passionate, energetic, zealous lives for your glory. And I pray, Lord, that all of us who are here today, when we get to the end of life, we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight, finished the race, I've kept the faith. Lord Jesus, you are able to do it. Do what we ask. Amen.